Welcome to the Youth Voice, a politics podcast giving young people a voice in politics across the island of Ireland. Today we're joined by MP for Sheffield Healy, as well as Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Louise Hay. So thank you for joining us. Hi, Dermot. So I suppose we'll get straight in. Uh, with In Wales, they've been given votes at 16 in local assembly elections. In Scotland, in constitutional referendums, they've also been given uh, votes at 16. Do you think it's going to be broadened anytime soon in Northern Ireland and then I suppose as well in the wider UK? Well, it's something that we've had in our manifesto in the um, in the Labour Party uh, over in Great Britain for the last couple of elections, I think, if not the last three. It, you know, it's not something that I've always, I have to be completely honest with you, um, supported. I remember... Um, when I was involved in Young Labour, uh, speaking against a motion and getting booed about it. And it was a very good lesson for me in learning to know your, uh, uh, know your audience uh, and adapt it. Um, but I've, I've come to change my mind, actually, and, and in large part because there's been a lot of work around this that shows that the younger you start voting and in countries and in, in areas where they've had elections where you start voting at 16, you're much more likely to carry on voting uh, throughout your life. Um, whereas if you um, if, if the age of uh, if, if the age of um, majority is 18, um, people are much less likely to vote when they turn 18 and then then they, they're not into the habit of it um, because 18 is such a huge transition year. It's such a moment of change for young people. But if you've got young people engaged at 16 whilst they're still in school or college, um, then it gets them engaged earlier and, and keeps them. So I'm, I've become a massive proponent where I, where, where I once wasn't. And we, um, we sought to amend um, when we had the referendum on EU membership to allow 16-year-olds to vote in that referendum, precisely for the same reason as they did in Scotland, because it was a once-in-a-generation um, opportunity to have a say on, on major constitutional change. Uh, and, um, and so we believe that was right for the referendum. But not just those, um, you know, it's right for, for, all, um, for all elections as well. So if we had a Labour government in four years time, then we'd absolutely have them for the whole UK um, and for any, any and all um, constitutional referendums, they definitely should have them in the meantime. Brilliant. Uh, I suppose actually kind of connecting on to that, the whole Brexit situation. I know, I suppose, while it might have calmed down in the mainland UK, it's kind of it's almost gotten more tense in Northern Ireland with calls to get rid of the protocol. Some are saying protect the protocol. Some are saying, no, they want it scrapped or amended. And, you know, yeah. so I suppose, how do we handle the current situation with all of this tension and mess and anger? Yeah, well, I'd say, um, firstly, um, although it's probably calmer politically in Britain around Brexit, um, there's there's been obviously massive disruption as well here um, because of the government's very thin deal and because it was came so late in the day. Um, so we're seeing businesses um, impacted already, uh, and you know that things will get worse as because at the moment things are artificially quiet because of COVID. Uh, you know the hospitality sector isn't opened up. A lot of businesses just aren't trading at their normal capacity. So as things open up again, we'll see more and more disruption emerge, and of course. Um, the deal that the Tories negotiated didn't cover services in any meaningful way either. So we'll, we'll start to see a real impact on the economy and on jobs, which will be compounded by COVID over the coming months and years. So um, as I say, whilst it might be slightly calmer politically, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're actually more exposed in, in Britain because we've not had the, um, 
we, we've not got the alignment with the European Union uh, that, that Northern Ireland does. So I'm really distracted because I've got a puppy in the background. He's just chewing <laughs> my shoes. Just one second, let me grab him. <laughs> just, ooh, he's just come to live with us this week. He's, he's not trained yet. Right, sorry, let me carry on. Um, but in terms of Northern Ireland, um, obviously there have been real concerns raised over the last few weeks in relation to the protocol. And the understandable and legitimate concerns in the unionist community that people have around it, um, because it does put a barrier between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, um, that although there have been some checks in the in you know in the past um, for well for over a hundred years, because Ireland is, is a single epidemiological unit there is now more of a barrier there and that is that is an understandable and legitimate um concern and and uh a, a worry for the unionist community like un undoubtedly and the more those checks uh, and barriers are the, the the greater the threat that feels so it's really important that um we try and minimize any disruption and minimize um the kind of barriers between trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and again we're only kind of seeing the thin end of the wedge of, of that at the moment because of Covid and also because we've got these grace periods coming up um, where we've had a sort of short um, short-term exemption but those will end at the beginning of April and at the end at the beginning of July um, and when they end then the checks are going to increase again um, but I'm certainly not in favour of scrapping the protocol you know it was torturously negotiated over many years. I was part of those Brexit debates um, for nearly all my first few years in Parliament. Um, and there was no simple answer to um, Northern Ireland and Brexit um, because of the land border with the Republic of Ireland. There was Theresa May's deal in the first instance that involved the backstop that was rejected repeatedly by Parliament. And the protocol was, was the, the, um, the alternative. There isn't, there isn't another one, and in, and in all the calls to scrap the protocol and and um, and start again from the beginning, I've not heard any sensible um, suggestions about what it could be replaced with. Um, the only real answer that we put forward throughout was for um, the whole of the UK to remain in the customs union and to align ourselves with a single market and that would mean that we wouldn't have to have checks in between Britain and Northern Ireland that was decisively rejected by the Tories time and time again so that's why we're in the situation we're now in um, and the only answer is for joint agreement with the EU um, to make sure that the arrangement is as flexible as possible and this di disruption is as minimal as possible but you know there's no point being dishonest like this situation is far from perfect uh, and not least because Northern Ireland um, the majority of people voted against Brexit um, but um, we, we are where we are because of the Tories red lines in the negotiations with the EU and because of their complete intransigence when it came to um, the whole of the UK staying in the customs union. Absolutely. I think at the moment it is, it's quite tense. I know just from watching the news and hearing the radio and all, but I suppose if we have a Labour government in, is, I think it's four or five years now, what will you do better than Brandon Lewis? What are you going to do differently for Northern Ireland? Uh, well, for, I mean, first and foremost, you know, for the Labour Party, um, 
for me and for Keir Starmer, we, we take Northern Ireland really seriously. Um, Keir worked in Northern Ireland for six years. He was the human rights advisor to the policing board when Hugh Ord was the chief um, constable. Um, the Labour Party obviously were co-signatories to the Good Friday Agreement. It's something that's very close to our hearts and that we have always in government and, and now in opposition treat as a priority. And that's just not the sense that you ever get from the Tories. It's uh, most a kind of problem to be dealt with um, or an afterthought or at worst a kind of political football for wider negotiating means and we've seen that time and time again in Brexit we saw that when Brandon Lewis came to the House of Commons last year and said that they were going to um, break the international law by um, by undermining the protocol all of this um, creates instability um, and and risks peace frankly and, pros and prosperity in, in Northern Ireland and you never get the sense from the Tories in government that they that they really particularly care about that and they care about the consequences of their actions. Now there's no electoral advantage for either the Tories or Labour for um, in, in Northern Ireland because neither of us stand as political parties but as I say it's something that Keir and I and all of us in the Labour Party feel really personally it's why we've launched the um, an education programme on the Good Friday Agreement for our Labour members here in, in Britain to talk about our role in helping secure that agreement um, and also why it's so important that we have a government in the UK that takes the peace process and, uh, and Northern Ireland seriously and what is left to fulfil um, out of the Good Friday Agreement. So that's really my immediate political priorities it's it's 23 years on from the good friday agreement before you were even born um to, to say what's left to be implemented and there is still a huge amount that is left undone and a large part of that is because we've had a government in westminster for the last 10 years that has completely taken their eye off the ball when it comes um when it comes to northern ireland and the good friday agreement so that would be mining keir's um responsibility and, and priority and we feel very passionately the pair of us as well um and we spoke about it when he appointed me to this role about the Labour's historic and important role as a, as a neutral and honest broker when it comes to Northern Ireland. Um, you know, Brandon Lewis says proudly he's a he's a unionist and he's a unionist when it comes to Northern Ireland. Well, Labour are a unionist party for the, for the UK and certainly when it comes to Scotland and Wales. But for Northern Ireland, we take very seriously our, our neutral constitutional role when it comes to the when it comes to the constitutional question. Absolutely. Uh, moving on from that, I suppose another big issue in Northern Ireland, especially this year, is the, the Northern Ireland centenary. Mm -hmm. the, the Northern Ireland office are saying that, you know, I suppose we're going to have a celebration or commemoration. There's even arguments over what we're going to call it. Yeah. You know, one side of the community doesn't want it. The other side, you know, quite firmly wants it. And then you've kind of got people in the middle who's like, oh, well, you know, we'll go for whatever people want. So I suppose how do we handle that kind of delicate I suppose situation with the centenary yeah well you have to be honest don't you like you say and and, and acknowledge that some uh, that one community will want to celebrate uh, the creation of Northern Ireland and um, the and its and its part in the in the United Kingdom and the other community will want to mourn the tragedy of the partition of Ireland um, and they are mutually exclusive <laughs> um, and and uh, and, 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 you know, that that just is the case in the whole, and the point of the Good Friday Agreement was to build a, a kind of inclusive, shared future for Northern Ireland with equal respect for both traditions. Um, and that 
whatever your equally legitimate aspirations, whether they be to a United Ireland or to maintain uh, the union through the United Kingdom, um, that you um, that your identity be respected equally and that you be able to live your lives and, and contribute to um, that shared future for Northern Ireland. So I think the problem with the NIO's approach to it is it's very one-sided and it only acknowledges really the unionist um, wish to celebrate or commemorate the creation of Northern Ireland. That's totally legitimate and they have absolutely right and we want to support them, mark that and celebrate it. But we also have to, in order to be truly inclusive, um, allow nationalist voices to be heard as well um, and to talk about the history um, of of partition as well as the creation. I think ultimately though, you know, all of us, and I, I think for most people in, in Northern Ireland that want to be forward looking and thinking about um, think about what policies and what kind of government will develop will deliver the shared future um, that was envisaged by the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and I think the voices of young people in this centenary year is going to be particularly important um, because they I know speak you know in the in the sort of limited opportunities I've had to speak to young people in Northern Ireland they often feel quite overlooked and underrepresented by politics there um, and so it's really important that your voice is a, a platform to think about the priorities that we should all be focusing on uh, for the next 100 years um, in Northern Ireland. Absolutely I think actually something I wanted to touch on there was that kind of feeling of disenfranchisement amongst young people I know in Northern Ireland, a lot of people, you know, they just do feel underrepresented by their politicians. And then I suppose one thing I've gotten from kind of talking to people in the UK is this kind of they're all the same about politicians and that kind of fear of, oh, well, what's the point in voting or what's the point in going out if, you know, if it's all just going to be the same or it's going to be, you know, another 10 years of Tories or, you know, mm -hmm. Labour might come in, but they might not bring in the radical change that we want. It's just kind of a they're all the same. So how do we how do we get young people back involved in politics? How do we really kind of reinvigorate young people within politics again? Yeah, I think there's a there's a big disconnect between politicians and young people. I don't think there's a big disconnect between with politics because a lot of young people are really engaged in politics, but probably but probably not in traditional party political um, means they'll be engaged with campaigns in their communities or around climate change around housing around education um, and it's I think it's just really important that traditional party politics and politicians connect with those campaigns in those communities in, in their grassroots form um, and so are able then to both represent those issues and interests um, but also um, kind of bridge the divide between party politics. I mean, I don't blame young people at all. I mean, I was a weirdo. I would like join the Labour Party at 15. Uh, I was elected very young. I was elected as an MP at 26. Um, but, you know, I am unusual in that in that sense. And even when, you know, the Labour Party had a massive um, influx of members, we still didn't see, you know, many young people coming and getting very involved in those traditional party structures because they're not very interesting, frankly. You know, coming along to your local constituency Labour Party meeting is not is not what most young people want to do on a Friday night. Um, so we need to we need to kind of break down those barriers, make them more accessible, make them more interesting, make make them more connected with those grassroots um, campaigns. It is getting better as you know, Parliament has never been as young as it is at the moment. It's never been as diverse in the Parliamentary Labour Party. We now have more women than men for the first time ever. Um, there's more. Um, uh, black and minority ethnic um, rep representation so it is improving and those those role models help but I think 
a big part of the problem is is just the the institutions uh, keep keep people at bay and keep people uninterested. Um, Westminster is so far removed from ordinary people's lives in Sheffield that they just don't feel um, they don't feel any kind of connection or or, or inspiration by it at all. It's it again. It's those barriers that with the institutions that need breaking down as well. Absolutely. I suppose a, a final thing I want to ask about. With I suppose the recent polls, sometimes Labour's in front, sometimes the Tories are in front. It's kind of a back and forth, and it's usually three or five, four points. Do you think we will see Keir Starmer as Prime Minister in the next election? I know that's I suppose quite a big question, but well, I, I mean, obviously, obviously, I really, really hope so. You know, we've had ten years of really brutal austerity, and young people have really paid the price um, for that. Um, you know, whether it's through paying the price through increased tuition fees. Or you know, not as um, uh, not as many work opportunities, job opportunities, uh, cuts to education, uh, cuts to public services. It's young people that have really been at the brunt of it. So we need we desperately need a change of government in Westminster because the Tories have done enormous damage to our economy and to the fabric of our society. And one of the reasons why we've got the highest death rate. Um, in the world at one point um, over the last few weeks was because they ripped up our, our public services. They decimated um, our ability and our resilience to respond to issues, uh, to, pan to, to anything that comes along like COVID. And the recovery will be much harder as well. So we've had a terrible, um, we've had a terrible impact on, on people's lives. We've lost over 100,000 people. We've also had one of the worst economic impacts in the world as well, because our economy has not been resilient because of austerity as well. So we desperately need that change in government in order to invest back in our public services and back in uh, our young people and, and in job opportunities and education again. Um, it is frustrating, obviously, to see us kind of level pegging with the Tories and, and as you say, kind of slipping forward and back again, at, you know, week by week when they have utterly failed. Um, I think there is still, even despite their enormous failures, that there is still quite a lot of goodwill amongst the population. People want to see the government succeed. So they're kind of rooting for them and they think, well, it's been a very, very difficult situation. They've done the best they can. That's eminently not true. They have not done the best they can at all. They've failed on almost every metric. Um, I think, but I think the big political battle for the next few years and in the run up to the election is going to be about how we recover um, and what comes next. Um, so people won't necessarily in, uh, in, in 20, 24 be thinking about this period that's just gone they'll be thinking about um a, a, about how the economy how the economy has managed to bounce back and what the next five or ten years will look like and labor will be presenting a very different vision and a very different strategy than the tories who as always want to cut back spending cut regulation uh, you know deliver a race to the bottom when it comes to um workers rights and protections and think that you can set the free market free and that that will uh, that will deliver investment and opportunities for all when we know you know from all our experience that that's absolutely not the case so um very long-winded way of saying uh, i hope so we've got big political battles to have over the next few years um but the stakes couldn't really be any higher well yeah thank you very much i think we're going to leave it there so for everyone that's listening thank you very much for listening uh, stay safe and we will see you all next time